0: Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your health care.
1: Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. My apologies for the hiatus in new episodes this year, but due to the unprecedented COVID-19 pandemic, we are all pretty much in a state of shock. I want to take a moment to thank all my fellow physicians, the incredibly brave nurses, and all the allied health workers, the respiratory therapists, the maintenance workers. All of you represent what's the best in America and are really helping all of us get through this crisis. Today's podcast isn't directly related to the COVID-19 subject, but I think you'll see indirectly it can be. Dangerous food allergies, in fact, dangerous multiple food allergies have played a major health issue over the past 20 years. Parents of children with these dangerous food allergies live in fear every day that their child may accidentally ingest a food that they are allergic to And possibly die. In fact, the New York Times actually had an article last week that discussed how parents whose children have food allergies are so worried that now with some food shortages that they'll be able to find a selection of foods that their child can't eat. Many of these children not only are allergic to one food, but in many cases allergic to multiple foods. My guest today is Dr. Edward Kim. I think Dr. Kim is an unsung hero in the battle to defeat food allergies. I've been looking forward to interviewing him and actually meeting him for over a year. Dr. Kim has successfully shown in his research without any big you know, drug company support that you can protect children from severe reactions to peanuts through sublingual allergy immunotherapy or in late terms, allergy drops under the tongue. Dr. Kim is currently an associate professor of medicine and pediatrics at North Carolina School of Medicine Formerly, he conducted a lot of his research at Duke Medical School. He is also the director of the UNC Food Allergy Initiative and the medical director of the UNC Allergy and Immunology Clinic. So it's with my great pleasure, I'd like to welcome Dr. Edward Kim to the podcast. Thanks for having me, team. My pleasure. As I said, I really was looking forward to meeting you in person at what was supposed to be the upcoming meetings in Philadelphia, which got canceled right on the cusp of this whole outbreak. So, I hope you and your family are all safe.
0: Yeah, thank you for asking. Yeah, we're hanging in there, I think, uh, hunker down just like most of the country
1: right now. Yeah, yeah, it's really wow. You've been obviously here in New York, it's been really a crazy yeah. crisis. Okay, so getting into food allergies, I want to first start generally a little bit. And people have asked me this question, my own patients. Um, I'd like to get your input. Why do you think food allergies are so prevalent today? And I would like to say also, especially multiple food allergies so just your your take on this from your experience in this field
0: yeah i mean again this is probably the number one question i get from my patients uh even to this day and to be honest if i knew the answer i'd probably be rich somewhere you know uh, <laughs> and i uh, wouldn't be necessarily still doing what i'm doing but you know again i think we all consider this to be a mix of a few different factors that are going on of course we think genetics is a part of this story because we know that uh, allergic parents are more likely to have allergic children. And so we know that that's a piece of it, but, you know, there's still tons of discussion about, first of all, what we have called for a while now that hygiene hypothesis. So first of all, this concept that we as a society are too clean. And so uh, in, you know, it's interesting to even bring this up when we're talking about Corona because it's all about being clean right now. But for as much as you know, you know, we, we're thinking that our immune systems are, basically geared to try to fight infections and in our industrialized countries like uh, like in the United States where a lot of these sort of parasitic and a lot of these other infections don't really exist because we do have good hygiene Um, our immune systems are sort of left to then become more allergic as opposed to sort of do what we were hoping it was meant to do which is to fight off infections so it does seem like that there's got to be a component of this hygiene hypothesis or this exposure out or lack of exposure, I guess, to infectious causes that may be part of the story.
1: You know, if I can interrupt you for a second, you know, in my experience, and I've had a dramatic case, which I'll share with you in a second, I I think, you know, the hygiene hypothesis for a long time was obviously a really a hot topic in our field and with, with obviously potential validity, but it doesn't always fit exactly into it. But antibiotics, I think the literature showing how that's causing microbiome dysfunction to me is one of the areas I think could possibly explain this huge increase in um, allergies and I think especially food allergies. And I'll just, I'll share quickly with you. I had a really interesting case. Actually, we're going to get into this because I'm treating a young boy that's got peanut uh, allergy with the sublingual drops, which we're going to talk about. But his mom is a, a nurse here in New York and very smart and very educated and she has two other children who are not allergic, and neither of her or her husband are allergic. And what she does remember vividly was that she developed an infection in the pregnancy with this particular child and had to be treated with like two weeks of antibiotics. So, I mean, again, obviously this is anecdotal, but I, I think also too in the, in some of our literature showing that asthma, allergic asthma has increased, especially if in the first year of life you're on antibiotics. So I was wondering if you think antibiotics you know, might be one of the factors that's increasing the food allergies in the in the kids.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because, you know, I, what I was going to mention with the hygiene hypothesis is it's sort of a nice, neat and clean type of story, but all of us have examples of how it doesn't fit. And I think people have punched holes in this theory, um, you know, many times over the last bunch of years. And really, as I think about the hygiene hypothesis, what really stands out to me Maybe more than the actual too clean is more this idea of timing. And it does seem like our field of food allergy is becoming more and more and more focused on timing. And it seems that if anything, it's going to be some of these things that happen to babies basically early, early, early in life, possibly even in pregnancy, but definitely early in life that seem to really affect whether they're going to become allergic or not. And antibiotics is absolutely one of those things that we think about. We have all these patients for those pediatricians that are out in the audience, uh, all these babies who are initially born and because of a potential infection are given antibiotics right when they're born. What kind of effect does that have? Yeah. We know in the United States and other industrialized countries, there's far more C-sections. So births that are happening sort of in these sterile environments. And you know how is that affecting an infant when they're first born? And does that potentially steer them towards uh, becoming more likely to become allergic?
1: I'm glad you brought that up. I that was like my next point, like on the hygiene thing, the the whole thing with the C sections, and then when the child is born. What's interesting now, you know, again, I learned this from some of my one of my patients was a um, a neonatal specialist. I forgot the name of it, but anyway, it was so interesting. What, what they, I don't, I forgot if they did it or the actual obstetrician. Like if a mother was giving birth by C section, they would take a special type of cloth and wipe the vaginal area and the fluids, and then wipe it all over the baby, right? And, uh, you know, or especially in the mouth, but I think all over, you know, to make sure that the, because apparently when the, the infant is going through the vaginal canal, it's getting the, you know, those the mother's protective vaginal microbiome, ingesting it essentially.
0: Yeah. and And so definitely, again, even that points to this idea that Uh, there must be some magic window of time for for all of our newborns, our infants, where their immune systems are more likely to become tolerant to all different kinds of things, including different foods. And it does feel like uh, our sublingual research is no different, but there is, again, a major push towards intervening early and whether it's going to be the early introduction of peanut to try to prevent allergy or in someone who's already become allergic, if we can get in there and actually treat them early, we have more of a chance of actually making a long term impact uh, on these children. So again, you know, the specifics of the cleanliness are still debatable but I do think that the early timing that aspect is something that definitely stands
1: out. Yeah. Well that like that dovetails perfectly into the next question I wanted to bring up with you as well, timing. You know, we now there's been a lot of research and literature on helping prevent food allergies before they even begin, and I know you're familiar with the LEAP study, some of our listeners may be aware of it as well too, it was the early introduction of the allergenic foods into an infant's diet, hoping to avoid the development of dangerous allergies, which I'll just explain briefly for our listeners, it was very interesting that several years ago an allergy researcher in England, Gideon Lack, I think he was giving a talk actually in Israel, you know, of all places where I did some of my training. and. He noticed among the doctors there, I guess, especially the pediatricians, that there was a much lower incidence of peanut allergy in their country, and he saw it contrasted with what he was seeing in a Jewish population in London, and then he got data, or uh, I guess checked with uh, doctors, I believe at Mount Sinai, Dr. Hugh Sampson's group in New York, and they did a study, you know, and looking at what were the factors why there was such a lower incidence of peanut allergy in Israel versus London and New York. And essentially what Dr. Lack found was that the early introduction of peanut into these young infants' diet made a huge difference in the incidence of peanut allergy. And um, I was just curious because obviously you treat, you know, so, you know, involved with peanut allergy, Have you been taking any steps at your institution? Is this, again, something that you're you're seeing more firsthand where there's been protection because kids are getting these allergenic foods earlier in their diet?
0: So I will say anecdotally, more and more people are asking about this, but I think our experience is probably going to mirror what many other places in the country have seen, is that the implementation of this early introduction has been much, much, much more difficult than we would have imagined and much slower than we would have imagined. The data that that LEAP study showed, I mean, again, you don't see graphs that are that dramatically different uh, in much research. And so it really does look like this can make a tremendous difference, but actually putting it into practice has been very difficult and for multiple reasons. But I think just number one is getting the information out there the idea of sort of avoiding peanut because it is an allergen is so ingrained in so many of us. And it's not just the the, the parents, but a lot of us as providers, the allergists, kind of grew up in a world of age one, two, three from milk egg and peanut. And then even the pediatricians, the number of pediatricians that I go and ask about food allergy, and they can immediately tell me one, two, three. It's amazing how sort of ingrained that that sort of teaching has become. And so to sort of unteach that. I think it's uh, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of important work that has right. to be done. But uh, I will say that you know what we have seen so far has mirrored that. So the kids generally do tolerate it if you get it in there early. But it's just been very slow to get it out there.
1: You know, you know it's interesting, Mike. The podcast I have hopefully coming up next week is actually with an allergist who's been working with a company called Ready Fast Go. And it's really interesting. They're coming up with these packets that – they're hoping that parents with, you know, have a high risk of food allergy in their family will add to, I guess, either the breast milk or regular milk to try to catch these kids and, and make it easier instead of, you know, a parent having to, you know, come up with their home, own homemade remedy. Because you're right, it's very challenging. And I, again, in talking to some of the other allergists that around the country, it's just a question, of the pediatricians are really on the first front line of this and they have to be educated so that they can educate the parents and select, I think, the uh, the right population to to implement this with, so. Well, I'm really kind of excited now, Dr. Kim, to get to your research, which I've been following for, you see, I'm a, I'm a big fan of yours. I've been following it for probably at least eight or nine years, because I know I have the journals that you published in. <laughs> I still keep them in my house. Um, so I just want to ask you this, First of all, what got you interested in sublingual algae drops for, for peanut algae? Because, you know, I, I know at the time that your study was published in 2011, it was actually a big time for food algae treatment. There was also studies being published at the same time and also from your institution, which I think was at Duke at the time, was on oral allergy immunotherapy. So just out of curiosity, what uh, what got you interested to try to use the sublingual drops?
0: Really, it was actually my mentor. So uh, it all started when I was uh, during my fellowship training over at Duke, and at that time I was fortunate enough to be working directly under Dr. Wesley Burks, who, of course, is um, you know the father of all a lot of this food allergy, especially the peanut allergy treatments that we've been doing. And it's just amazing to think back. I mean, this was 2008-ish, something like that. And right. at that time um, there were some ongoing studies. One of them using this peanut flour and just you know, giving a little bit to these allergic kids as well as trying it in this liquid drop form. And, you know, I'll be honest, it was um, really interesting to me because of the novelty of it, but there's no way I would have predicted that fast forward 12 years from now, and then suddenly we actually have a peanut flour product that's available on the market. And then, you know, multiple studies now that have shown that these peanut drops can actually make a tremendous difference Uh, in these patients lives. So really a lot of it kind of like the research you hear about all the time. It's, it's a lot of, you know, I think good luck and good and hard work at the same time. Um, It's kind of how it got me where I am today.
1: Well, I I know in your group, you know, there was obviously like Dr. Burke. So, you know, you, you've trained under, you know, had a lot of these different trials going on, you know, with the oral allergy immunotherapy, which the listeners should know is that's, that's where you swallow peanut flour. And in those studies, uh, and in practical use of it, because there are practices that are using it, you know, they they give the kids in a, a capsule or in some type of uh, drink, I guess, or food, the peanut flour, and it's built up to high doses, and it's been clearly shown to be effective, but as been, has been reported in the literature, there are a lot of reactions as the patients are going through, you know, the buildup phase, and even later on, they can have reactions if they have an infection or, you know, if they exercise too closely to doing this. But the sublingual drops, which, again, you've shown in your research, seem to be not only effective, I think in your studies and the most recent one we'll get to, you know, the kids sometimes can tolerate up to three to nine peanuts, but they also appear to be a lot safer. Like you didn't, I think in all of your studies, didn't there wasn't one dose of epinephrine that had to be used uh, during uh, the treatment of these patients. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. So again, if you think back to when we were starting to do this, so uh, this is back again, 2008, 2007. And, um, you know, in the United States, I guess, uh, one of the things that was starting to take off was sublingual for environmental allergies. And it seemed to be a nice alternative to the allergy shots uh, with a pretty good safety record. And so, you know, we jumped onto that idea and started doing it for food allergy. And at that time, like we mentioned just a few minutes ago, we were doing the oral uh, as well as a treatment. And it was interesting to just sort of see these patients side by side. And see in the cases of the oral where there were all kinds of restrictions that we were discussing, we started to see patterns where, just like you mentioned, if you have a patient who catches a cold or, or you know, gets the flu, suddenly that same patient who had been eating, you know, eating this peanut flour treatment on a daily basis for multiple months uh, without any problems suddenly has an allergic or even an anaphylactic reaction. And so uh, the guidance started to say, well, maybe you shouldn't give it with, uh, if you're having a fever. And then suddenly we started seeing cases where people on the peanut flour were exercising to go off and do their soccer game. And then suddenly they have anaphylaxis to that same dose they should have been okay with. And it was just fascinating for me to be sitting there with our sublingual kids and thinking, well, should we be worrying about this? But to be honest, just not seeing it. And So our kids really did well with it. And the the side effect that they all report, or many of them report, uh, lines up exactly with what we had been seeing for the environmental allergies. And that's this itching that some of the kids will get in their mouth that may last for say 10 or 15 minutes, it might be annoying at best, but really none of the the, the kids really needed any treatment for it. So uh, there was not any Benadryl use, there was definitely no epinephrine use. And really, these these itching would just go away after about 10 or 15 minutes on its own. And so, you know, really stood out to me that we have something here that, you know, patients, if they had to use it for a long period of time, probably could because the safety looks so good.
1: Yeah. You know, I I think we had discussed before too. I I've, I've been doing sublingual immunotherapy for environmental allergies for like 20 years. I was really fortunate I to been exposed to some of the work from the group out in Wisconsin, Cross Allergy Associates, who I, I have a lot of gratitude for and and they were working with the Europeans who in Italy and Germany, Dr. Uh, Konica, who actually uh, was nice enough to put it forward in my book on this subject that they really led the way and I now over 20 years treated thousands of patients with it thank god not any severe reactions and have helped i think you know majority of the patients so that's why I, again i i think it is such a great convenient type of thing did you find it surprising though i was just curious you know so it's so interesting because with the food allergy treatment your dosage is really significantly lower than what they use with the oral allergy peanut treatment but yet your results were in a lot of ways, just as good.
0: Yeah, so I will say we were surprised and very pleasantly surprised. And just to to kind of put it it into a reference range. So that double blind oral peanut study, the peanut flower study that was happening in parallel with our sublingual study, they were actually using a dose of 4,000 milligrams of peanut protein, which is the equivalent of say, 12 to 15 peanut kernels that these kids were eating on a daily basis. Now, keep in mind, these kids are eating it. So there is a level of sort of understanding that they are tolerant to a certain amount. And then suddenly we're doing the same study right next to them where we're using two milligrams. So again, 300 milligrams is about one kernel, of uh, one peanut kernel, so one 150th of a peanut kernel. And we moved forward with it because we did see changes in the immune system and it was well tolerated. But it wasn't until we got to the actual food challenges where suddenly we're seeing some kids that are eating anywhere from 1,000, 2,000, and even a third of the patients were eating 5,000 milligrams uh, on a food challenge after eating or basically taking the sublingual dose of two milligrams on a daily basis. So it was just an incredible, almost too good to be true type of uh, response that we saw with this treatment. And it really kind of opened the door for us to, to move forward with our subsequent studies.
1: Yeah, I, I thought it was really amazing. And, it, and it, you know, it shows you sometimes a lot of times we don't even understand the the whole mechanism of desensitization because, again, for many years as allergists, we took so much pride in that, oh, yes, we, you know, we, we don't do homeopathy. We, uh, you know, we desensitize patients to very high doses, but, you know, it really makes us re-examine. And not that I'm an advocate of homeopathy. I don't understand. I don't know a lot about it, but, you know, but this is just going to a different dosage level and getting the immune system to build up tolerance. So, I, I, I thought it was like a phenomenal... Solution really to what this whole problem, and um, you know, it gets me to my next question with you too. Is it's so great the way you lead me into perfectly what I want to ask you? You know, when I looked at your studies really carefully, and I want for the listeners to understand, so I'll, I'll try to you know make it you know user friendly. Obviously, to prove that your therapies are working, but what you know, the sublingual drops, you do food challenges with patients because you you want to see after a period of time that they c- c- tolerate. Obviously. Uh, in your in your the case of your studies, the peanut at different levels to see how protected the children are. And in addition to that, you also did blood testing where you looked at something called specific IgG4. And for the, again, the listeners, IgG, as you're starting to learn now with COVID, and we can tie this together, is the protective antibody. IgG is the good antibody. And there's also something called specific IgE to peanut where I like to think of the, I, the E as the evil antibody. So I I looked at your studies, and maybe you could give us a little more insight in this, that essentially the patients in your program after a year or two, three years of treatment were passing certain levels of food challenges. And also you were finding that they had elevated the good antibody against the peanut and in some cases also decreased antibody of the IgE or the evil antibody to the peanut. So could you... I'm really interested in to hear more about this, what what you could take away from you know these findings.
0: Sure, yeah. I mean, I think to me, the the lab lab markers, what we call these biomarkers, that's actually the key to me that really suggests that we are making a, a true big difference here. I've had some people come and criticize sort of the idea of food challenges and you know talk about perhaps that person had a quote unquote good day or had a bad day on mm-hmm. these food challenges, and that's somehow how they're able to eat more. Now, first of all, I would argue if most of these people are reacting to a third of a peanut and then suddenly can eat ten plus peanuts, that seems pretty hard to believe to be by chance. Right. But, uh, but really, what kind of makes it real for me is when you look at these lab markers. So, I'm actually going to go back to the environmental allergy discussion that we started with, and and there, you know, when they've looked back at people who've been on allergy shots for, say. Um, ragweed or grass uh, or the ones that are allergic to say bee stings and wasps what they see is a certain pattern of immune changes in these and so it's exactly what you had described you start to see this bad or this evil ige decrease with treatment you see an increase in that protective igg you see decreases in the skin tests, which represent those allergic cells called mast cells And then in the blood, you can even check these basophils. And the basophils and the mast cells, these are the cells that actually release that histamine chemical that leads to all the outward symptoms that we see. And so there are patterns of of these changes in the immune system that we see with those other types of treatments. And then when we moved over to food and we're looking at our sublingual, uh, even with this, again, tiny, tiny dose of two milligrams, when we started seeing skin tests getting smaller over a period of six to 12 months, when we started seeing the IgE go down and the IgG4 go up, It was, you know, I mean, it really showed us that we are, uh, this is not uh, some sort of fluke type of response we're seeing in a food challenge, but we're actually making a difference to the immune system. We're actually decreasing the reactivity of the immune system. And then when you get to the actual food challenges itself, then you see it in real life. You see that patient suddenly be able to eat 10 or 20 times as much peanut as they had been, sort of at baseline without treatment. And so, you know, again, I think that's the key aspect here is that we are making changes to the immune system. And right now, we're really at the point where we're trying to see how long-lasting can we make those immune changes? Can we make it last for months? Can we make it last for years? Of course, in a perfect world, we want this to be permanent. At this point, I don't know that we have any, um, you know, enough evidence to really suggest that. But... I think there's a lot less doubt right now that it is making a change. It's just a matter of how good and how long can we make it
1: last. Yeah. So Dr. Kim, what's the range that you've seen? Is it, you know, because I know in some of them, it's been very transient just a few months, but have you seen where patients, you know, I guess I think you did in your follow-up study where some patients, was it like at least over a year or two that they were still protected even though they had stopped the sublingual drops?
0: Well, so we don't we don't have that far out yet as far okay. as the year is concerned, but I will say that um, right now the issue has become we, we don't necessarily know how to prove that someone is cured. So there's not, again, a single blood test that's just a yes or no on this. And so that's where we've come up with sort of this, um, I would call almost wimpy way of measuring, basically having someone on treatment for a period of time show that they are protected with that food challenge that they do well on, and then taking that treatment away for a period of time. So whether it's one or two or three months, and then seeing if that protection is still there. So kind of what you just mentioned. Yeah, that's
1: a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. The problem though that we run into,
0: though, is um, the way we've done it so far is that we've only checked the people who have sort of the, the full pass or the maximum protection that we tested them to. So if we decided in that particular study, 20 peanuts is the, the magic number, then those are the only people that we would take the treatment away from and then say a month or two later, see if they can eat 20 again. But to me, that's a little bit faulty because that 20 peanut number, it's sort of made up. right? And to me, honestly, again, is that a cure? Is that not a cure? You know, and what about that person who's able to eat 10 peanuts? I would say, again, no one's going to eat 10 peanuts by accident. So that's still a really important clinical marker to me. Right. And for that same kid, I would love to know if you miss your drops for two months, are you still protected or do you have to start over? Right. And so with our newer studies, we have been trying to do exactly that is trying to just take all comers wherever they are, whether they're sort of the, the full maximum 20 or 30 peanut protection, they're the 10 peanut protection, or maybe even the one peanut protection. Yeah. And then trying to see how long does that last? Because I do think that there's going to be some super practical implications to this. Yeah. At this point, I don't know that anyone is ready to say any of these things are a cure. But if you knew that you could be, say, off for a month, say you had summer camp or you know, a vacation, something where you're off for a month, and that, uh, you know, you fell off the wagon and you just right get right back on and you're back to where you were and fully protected again. I think that can make a tremendous difference.
1: Yeah, and I think a couple of really important points, I just want to look for the listeners, and I think you probably would agree. I mean, one of the things is the drops are really easy to do. It's not like the oral allergy where they have to eat a certain amount of peanuts a day when they're at maintenance. I mean, doing a little dropper on your tongue is quite easy and it's portable and you can take it. So that's the number one thing. And I think also, too, so many children and the parents – They're not looking, obviously, to eat 10 peanuts. They just want to know if there's one or two peanuts go up a bit in the bottom of a salad or a cookie or something that they don't go into a severe allergic reaction. And, And I think the kind of work that you've done has shown that this can be not only protective immunologically, but probably to some degree mentally as well. You know, it's like people, parents and the kids get so afraid. Oh my God, they find out there was a peanut in the bottom of my ice cream or something like that too. And, and then the anxiety builds up along with the actual physical reaction.
0: Yeah. I'm really glad that you bring that up because, um, I do feel like that is something that is different than when we first started doing this research. And today, you know, if if we had a one shot cure, of course, everybody would sign up for that. But at this point we don't have that. And so You know, I think early on with our research, it was mostly us as the researchers kind of putting on the patients of what we thought should be the answer, and that was to eat as much peanut as possible on a daily basis. But I think what we have discovered really over the last 10 plus years is that, you know, that's not necessarily what patients want. And you've kind of brought this up. At the end of the day, what patients really, really want here is to not worry about it, is to not think about it. The majority of the kids that we've had in our treatment protocols who have graduated, when I ask them, Oh, aren't you so excited? You can go get that jar of peanut butter or eat that Reese's Mm. peanut butter cup. And to be honest, that is the last thing in the world that these kids want to do. Yeah. One thing they want to do is go out there with their friends, go, you know, go to Dairy Queen, go wherever, and just not order the peanut, but not think about it not worry about it. And really, again, I think it hits at what you mentioned that they just want that reassurance that they're going to be okay. And at the root of all of this is they just want to be normal. They want to be like all the other kids.
1: You're right. You know, my son's best friend growing up had severe, dangerous peanut allergy. And he used to always walk around. And he was a very popular kid. He was a really great athlete. So he was really lucky. But it was like a stigma for him. He used to carry around that fanny pack all the time. And his mom used to love when he did sleepovers at my house because uh, she knew I was an allergist. So <laughs> she, had to, she figured I'd know what to do. You know, Doug, I want to go back to one more thing too, which I found, because I've been following some IgG4s on my environmental allergy patients. And, you know, I just want to get your input. This is my own personal edification. You know, IgEs, which, you know, some of these allergic kids can be very high. Their total IgE, their specific IgE uh, to peanut, for example, you know, sometimes you'll see it's, you know, over a hundred and to those specific proteins. When I've been doing desensitizations for the environmentals, like and I look at the specific IgE, for example, you know, in those cases like to grass or tree pollen or dust mites, I've been looking carefully at a, a total level, but also the ratio, because you know, if you think about it, if somebody has just, for example, an IgE to peanut of hundred and has a severe reaction, and another kid has a specific IgE, let's say to peanut of ten, but also has very severe reactions their IgG4 is going to probably be different, right? Because there's less, you know, in the second one's a tenfold less IgE level. So I was just curious, did you guys ever look at the ratios of giving you an idea if there's protection or do you look at, you know, if someone gets at a certain level, like, I don't know, whatever, it's 1.0 or something. I saw that with some of the peanut studies, they did it for foods. So I'm just curious if you, instead of having to do these food challenges, if at some point you know, there'll be information enough from the from the lab, the blood, to have a fairly good idea.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad you bring that up because unfortunately, like you know, at this point, our typical test is not great at predicting severity. And, you know, that is one of the bits of information that is so vitally important to patients. I mean, if you knew that your kid, if he ate peanut, was just going to break out in hives and not have anaphylaxis, that, you know, is a tremendous difference sort of on their mindset. But unfortunately, at this point, we don't have a test that is very good at predicting that. One thought is exactly what you brought up, is, is this ratio potentially helpful? And it, it kind of does make sense. Like, you know, if you have that kid who doesn't have a lot of IgE, but all of it is to peanut, it makes sense that they're probably not only very likely to have a reaction, but maybe more at risk for having a big one versus you could have some of those kids who have tons and tons and tons of IgE, but it's a little bit to everything, a little bit to wasp, a little bit to ragweed, a little bit to peanut. And perhaps those kids maybe don't have as much a of a bigger reaction. In our studies, we've tried to look to see if that can somehow predict who will do good and who wouldn't do good. And I think, unfortunately, the numbers in our studies haven't been quite big enough to really say for sure. Yeah. Uh, but I absolutely agree that that's something that uh, we want to be studying. And, and a lot of the other newer studies are looking at exactly those numbers to see what type of predictive value they may have sort of at baseline. But then also, can it somehow predict the kids who will do good on these treatments or not?
1: You know, one of the things also, I know you as a researcher, and as I said, I really laud what you're doing. I mean, it's, it's just so important, and of course, without really big pharma support, because they, they have their own agenda. But, you know, one of the things I also like the idea about the food allergies, and I actually just started doing it myself with some patients, is also with the drops, you can mix different. Food allergens. Now, I know again, like in research, you're looking at a very from a very pure point of view because you have really important things you have to prove. But you know, as you know and, and I know, so many kids that have a food allergy, it's typically not just to one allergen, and a lot of times it could be multiple tree nuts. It could be milk and egg as well, and this this is where really the hardship comes in for parents because it's hard enough when your kids highly allergic just to peanuts, but all of a sudden throw in egg and milk and wheat. And now you're talking about serious anxiety. (laughs) So just what your thoughts would be in the same way we mix environmental allergens. Do you think there would really be any negative to mixing food allergens in in treating these kids so you can do it all at once? Yeah,
0: I'm glad to bring that up as well, because uh, I would say probably at least 50 percent, if not more, of the kids that we treat for peanut allergy have other allergies. And whether it's going to be those tree nuts or like you mentioned, the milk and the egg. And if we had to treat one at a time, I mean, each of these treatments, typically we're looking at a multi-year treatment. You know, I joke with the kids that they're going to be, you know, 80, 90 years old by the time we kind of get <laughs> all of their treatments done. And so, you know, we really do need to look at, is there, is there a way that we can safely and effectively treat all the allergies at once? And when it comes to these immunotherapies, you know, honestly, I think sublingual fits in perfectly forward because again, it's, it is a sort of a small volume liquid only complication I could think of would be, well, if there is sort of a side effect or reaction, it would be difficult to tease out, you know, which of the components it would be. But generally, again, with such a good safety signal that we get from sublingual, I think it would be fine to, you know, still take that approach. They've been looking into this potentially for the peanut flour and, you know, doing other food flours as well, and mixing those together. But you do have to wonder If you already have some of these side effects that people have been worried about with peanut flour, and then you start again, mixing multiple foods in the flour form, uh, you know, how tolerable will that be? And what will that safety be? Again, we don't know, and it needs to be done to understand it. But I do think that sublingual um, can, you know, sort of fill a void when it comes to that. Now, again, you know, we continue to do research sort of separate from immunotherapy as well. And if there's some way for us to just dial down the allergic immune system altogether, you know, and independent of any foods, that would, of course, be the, the ultimate dream. So is there any way to sort of just turn off anaphylaxis so that no matter what you're allergic to, that you do better? But, you know, again, that's still years away at this point. So, you know, working with what we have, I do think that sublingual is perfectly set up. Uh, to be able to try to treat multiple foods at the same time. But we just, you know, again, not enough of us have experience with that at this point.
1: Yeah. You know, what I'm applying, it's interesting, like what I've done for many years when I did the environmental allergies, and especially I have people that are highly allergic to cat, for example, like they couldn't walk into a room where there was a cat, their throat would close up. And a lot of times too, these patients would also be allergic to dogs and maybe to pollen. And so they would say to me, you know, look, I'm very highly allergic to cats. I don't even have a cat, but if I go to my aunt Bessie's house, I can't breathe, you know, and she makes delicious, you know, cookies or whatever. So when I was treating these patients for multiple allergens, what I would typically do in their buildup, I would do it, uh, at different concentrations and vary it. So I could usually tell, you know, one component might be at a higher level than another, that if I increased it, which one caused the reaction. So I was able to tease that out a little bit. And that's, again, what I'm going to try to do with the foods, because again, so many patients have multiple food allergies and, uh, you know, and yes, before you and I retire and you're younger than I am, um, I would <laughs> like to see these, these kids have a certain degree of protection, you know, to give them a much better quality of life. I want to move on to the sort of the final round of questions and get your thoughts and opinions. Again, you, you being an academic allergist who, again, carries a lot of important weight in, in certain ways, do you think that, I don't know, do you think allergists in general, and maybe even the drug companies that are coming out with all of these, what I call drugs, have forgotten what the allergists were originally trained in, and, and that's desensitization. Do you know what I'm saying, Dr. Kim? Like, you know, again, when somebody's allergic to a drug allergy, they don't, the drug company doesn't come up with a drug for that. The, the, the allergist goes through a desensitization process in the hospital. And what I, you know, I'll give you my, this is my personal take. Let's say there are a couple of products for sublingual tablets for em- environmental allergens, but what I've found with patients is that a lot of them didn't tolerate it because it wasn't at different doses. It started at just one high dose, and yes, some people tolerated it, but a lot of other people didn't. So do, do you think that as a specialty, we've forgotten a little bit what our strength is?
0: Yeah, I see where you're going at with that. And, you know, I think that is probably coming a little bit from a combination of practicality, and then, of course, I think marketing with sort of the science that we understand. But I think the one thing that would, now it might be because I'm living in this academic world where I'm oblivious, but the piece that would make me feel better that we haven't totally lost sight of that decentralization is the the, um, the the lab work that we've been doing behind our studies. So I, you know, I went on and on about it a little bit ago, but you know, for many, many years, we did this desensitization stuff for environmental allergies, actually for a hundred years uh, without knowing a lot of the science that was behind it. And we knew that our patients were getting better and we fine-tuned sort of that craft as allergists over many, many, many years. Uh, But, you know, now I think as we study sort of what is actually happening at the immune system, it actually, if anything, is a little bit reassuring to me towards what you mentioned about uh, desensitization, because I think we're trying to understand What are we really doing to the immune system? And then trying to find ways to tweak it and and get better at it. And so I think at least in our academic worlds, I feel like we are, if anything, hopefully starting to even more embrace that desensitization and and by understanding it in more depth and then, like I just mentioned, can we, you know, are there ways we can do this desensitization better? So not just sort of keep doing sort of the same thing we've been doing over and over again, but, you know, some examples would be, well, we know that, say, peanut sublingual works. What if we, is there anything we can add to that peanut that could maybe make it affect the immune system in a stronger way or a safer way? Or are there are combinations of foods, like you had mentioned, that can potentially do this. And, and so I do think there's hope. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and again, it might be because I'm buried in my academic role, but I do think that uh, we we are learning more about desensitization and at least some of us are still fully embracing it.
1: Well, you know what I think would be helpful? I I think I brought this up to Hugh Sampson once at a conference, you know, just in in speaking that, you know, again, I think like yourself, like when I make the peanut sublingual drops for my patients, I'm getting the extract from the company, which is the whole peanut extract. It would be really interesting if at some point they're able to come up with a peanut extract, as you know, which is just the protein components, like the RH1, 2, or 3. And maybe that, again, would be more specific and, you know, maybe induce more lasting immune protection. But, you know, the other thing I actually just wanted to jump to, it almost goes perfectly into, unfortunately, the situation we're dealing with right now, too. Uh, The thing I love about sublingual drops, and again, so many of my patients now, you know, we, we mail out the drops to them when they're at certain dosages, so they don't have to come into the office and where some of my other colleagues in New York are giving allergy or giving allergy injections and now that's all been disrupted you know because of covid-19 so you know who knows in some crazy way too sublingual might be the treatment standing the tallest even for allergists after this whole epidemic what do you think
0: yeah i agree i mean i've definitely thought of that as well and You know, our research has also been halted. I think again, we're uh, not, you know, thankfully for us, we're not in the situation you guys are in in New York, but we definitely are worried that it's coming to us. And so for our study patients, you know, there has been this exact discussion of how do we keep them sort of on treatment and not lose the progress we've made. And uh, the sublingual treatments, uh, the patients that are on the sublingual studies, it's the easiest thing ever. Just get them a couple more bottles and they can just stick with the dose they're doing. We've had so little concerns about the safety and it's just very, very, very easy for them to do. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think your point is, is very important and COVID does kind of bring that out is um, this is something that can, you know, confidently be done at home uh, with such a great safety record and so easy to do.
1: Yeah. Well, now I'm going to ask you a political question, but not a democratic Republican question. <laughs> do you think, That our allergy societies, what's called the Quad AI or the American College of Allergy and Immunology, should they get behind sublingual treatment, you know, especially the drops, and give it its blessing? Which, because I know for many years I I, I took a lot of arrows in the back, you know, doing this 20 years ago, a lot of they felt it was too controversial, and then maybe they should even have like an insurance code, like a CPT code for sublingual. Do you think the time is right? And you know, again, you really being one of the leaders in the country. Do you see that potentially happening?
0: Well, so, I mean, I'm going to answer that in a couple of ways. So in the short answer, I I do think that it would be good for uh, the societies to kind of acknowledge that there are different ways to do the treatment. But really the way that I see the American College and American Academy backing this is more with the idea that I think at this point, short of a cure, like I mentioned at this point, we don't have it, understanding that, you know, there are, every patient is different. I don't think at this stage there is any right treatment for every patient that's out there, and I think there's going to be some patients where that peanut flower is going to be right for them, and whether it's because of their personal severity or if it's something specific to their lifestyle, the peanut patch that's in development now, same thing. I think there'll be a group of patients where that is going to be, you know, the right medicine for them. And sublingual, again, I feel like kind of rides the middle. It has a nice balance of, of good protection, you know, maybe not quite nearly as high as the oral immunotherapy, but, you know, in the thousands of milligrams, so doing pretty good. Uh, And then it seems to be very easy to do. And we've already talked a lot about the safety. And so I think it falls in the middle. And really, if anything, I feel like the academy and the college, you know, I think would be good for them to really promote this idea that it is about uh, this phrase you've seen a lot recently, but this idea of shared decision making. I think we are in a position where we're talking about personalized medicine for food allergies because it affects every patient in very different ways and um, you know I think there it becomes important that we embrace all the different options that may be out there and one important option I'll remind everyone of, is avoidance. There are going to be some patients where no treatment makes sense because whatever reason that might be but really I think just making sure that everybody is aware of all the different options that are out there not just the the ones that are Uh, promoted by a company, but other ones that could be out there or maybe, you know, just down the pipe Mm. uh, to make sure that people are aware so they can make the best choice for their particular
1: case. I have one last question for you. Mm -hmm. I I remember reading about this probably also like eight, nine years ago that Estelle Simons, one of the leading researchers up in Canada on epinephrine use that they had, they were studying sublingual epinephrine. Have you heard any more about that? Is you know, is that available anywhere, even outside of the United States?
0: Yeah, you know, I've not heard of this, but it's something that I wish would happen because, you know, I think sort of a side fact that we've learned in our research is just the auto injector for epinephrine, it has such a tremendous effect on these patients, especially the kids, but even some of the adults. And it took me a few years, uh, as well as actually talking to my nephew, who ha- happens to have peanut you know, allergy as well to realize that um, you know, the, the, the kids, they don't always understand sort of what anaphylaxis means. And a lot of them don't understand what death means, but what they do understand is an EpiPen. When you tell them that they may need to get this injection to get out of their reaction, it dro- it. drop the emotions that that pulls out are incredible. And I do feel like that uh, unfortunately leads to a lot of patients not using that medicine when they need to. And so again, alternative approaches. So sublingual would sound like an awesome one, Uh, but alternative approaches to epinephrine would be really, really important. And, you know, it does still tie into what we're doing with our food treatments, because again, um, even with the sublingual, although the chances seem to be very small, that chance of an allergic reaction that might need epinephrine is still there. And so in that situation, we want to make sure that they have a medicine in their house that they are willing to use in case of those reactions. But um, To answer your original question, I I haven't heard anything uh, sort of beyond what you've heard, but uh, I do think it's important to continue to pursue it.
1: Yeah. You know, Edwin, the last thing to also to bring up too, which it fascinated me 20 years ago when I got involved with this, that the sublingual area is really a great area to get in treatment or medication. You know, it's fascinating because it bypasses the stomach, which to explain to our listeners, is essentially what we call the first pass effect. I even recommend, when I recommend vitamins to patients, I tell them, take it on your tongue or take it sublingual because once you swallow something, you know, and especially if it's a foreign thing like a medication, the, after the stomach digests it and everything and goes to the intestine and then it goes to the liver where the liver detoxes it and then it puts it back in the circulation, you know, you get a much lower response so the sublingual, and also it's much easier too than putting something up your nose, you know what I mean, you know, so, or in your eye. So it, it's kind of fascinating that it, you know, I, I've also seen with the environmentals that, you know, taking sublingual algae drops for environmental allergies will protect the nasal symptoms, the eye symptoms, and, and even, you know, asthma, chest symptoms.
0: Yeah, you know, again, that's why we think that we can get away with such a small dose. Uh, You know, going back to the 4,000 milligrams of the peanut flour versus just a simple two milligrams or four milligrams that we do for sublingual, you know, just uh, you mentioned like how much of that's the peanut flour is going to pass straight through your GI tract, how much of that is going to be sort of grabbed by your immune system and never absorbed in the first place. And then how much will even be broken down through uh, things like your liver versus sublingual, it seems to get directly absorbed to those immune cells that are in your mouth. So Uh, Again, another reason that I think it is an important area to study.
1: Okay. Well, Dr. Kim, I really want to thank you for taking the time during this whole crisis to give all of those suffering with food allergies, not only hope for the future, but hope right now to protect them against food allergies. You are truly one of the bright stars, I think, in the field of allergy. I'm a big fan of yours. I'll continue to follow your research. And uh good luck taking care of your patients down uh, at North Carolina medical school.
0: Yeah. Thank you again for having me on the show. Um, You know, you and I've been talking for quite a while and I'm glad that we're finally able to do this.
1: Yes. Yeah. I hope when you're back, when when we get you back up here in New York, visiting your folks in Jersey, I'll uh, we'll get together. Yep, Absolutely. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to the smartest doctor in the room with host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.